Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. So, does it hurt to have a baby? <laughs> uh... Yes, I think it hurts. Yes. Would you call it excruciating pain? Um, I'm sure there are moments that are really excruciating. You're saying that like you haven't been well, there or been I through it. I have been there and I've been through it. It's just one of those things that I think, you know how they say, it's a pain but you forget it. Because if you remembered all the detail of the pain, you wouldn't probably have another child. But, um, so I feel like I had memories of pain. But it, it wasn't impactful and it didn't um, it didn't hold on. Like it didn't hold into a memory bank. Like the but joy had, of having a baby overwhelmed oh, yeah. the pain. But I also, I didn't have like, I had all vaginal births. I didn't have anything super tricky. I didn't have a whole lot of like, you know, postpartum recovery. But you did have but I had four distinctly different births as it relates to pain medication. Yes. Like you had a barbiturate for the first one. Yes, and that was after the excitement of being new parents and we were up for a very long time. As soon as I felt that first little contraction, we were like packing our bag, you know, get our packed bags and ready to go to the hospital. And they were like, you aren't even close, lady. Go back home for a while. Right. So they gave me a sleeping pill so I would sleep, but it made me sick. So then I was like groggy and sick. And then when I went in to have the baby and took the barbiturate. Well, it, it must not it, have been your favorite thing because you only had the barbiturate for the first. And then yeah. you had... Well, because it affected the child. Yeah, well, that was very scary. And then the second one, you had an epidural. But I got it late. But it was late and so didn't I help had, so much. I had all the, the contractions. third one, we barely got you out of the car before he was delivered, so... You had no pain medication for him. But that was full adrenaline. Like, I remember all the pain, but it was, like, fully adrenaline rush because I was I was worried we were going to have the baby in the wheelchair in the, in the um, emergency room entrance. And then the fourth one, your water broke. That was the first time we had experienced that. Yeah. And so they were the hospital, yeah. trying to speed you along. and uh, But you did have an epidural as well there, right? Yeah. 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 So four different, very different experiences. The, I guess the reason I thought I would ask you about childbirth is, A, I have no understanding of what that pain might be like. And B, um, you know, this episode is about pain, and that was the most um, kind of relatable incident of pain I could think of. You, mm -hmm. you tend, you, you cook a lot, you are... You have a culinary degree, you are chef trained, and you like to be fast with your knives sometimes, <laughs> and you get the tip of your finger chopped off from time to time. Shh, don't tell Chef Fisher that. He would always say I was going to cut off my pinky, but it was always my index finger. Well, one time I was just being stupid yeah. when I, the latest time I cut the tip well, of it off. I, an argument could be made that all the times you <laughs> cut your finger off, you were being stupid in one way or the cut other. Cut the tip of my skin off, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's maybe a semi-relatable pain, but I, but I'm I'm wondering. It's it's interesting. You went the opposite direction. I I was going as it relates to the pain of childbirth. I was kind of surmising that the pain of childbirth is severe, so that you don't decide to have a baby once a year and just pop them out left and right like cray cray. Well, um, I think I think the there are other reasons. Yeah, there are other reasons that prevent that, but but does that pain of childbirth serve a purpose? And again, I'm recognizing the fact that I have no legs to stand on because I've never been through it, but I would think that it would be part of the reason that we don't have 20 children, and instead we have four, and that's plenty. Well, I think there's a lot more reasons we don't have 20 children, and it's not just because of the pain of childbirth. But it's hard. It's hard. There's the pain there's of like the child whole... raising. Yes. And then there's the pregnancy. That's a whole level of discomfort that happens. You know, um, you could have morning sickness. And then, you know, then your ligaments for your um, 
and your pelvis, like, that gets really uncomfortable towards the end. Your The weight of the baby pushing down on you. Just so, more pain. So it's just, it, I wouldn't, it's, all the time it's not pain. But, and again, I had really healthy, fairly easy pregnancies besides the morning sickness. Um, but I think it's just that it's a lot. It's a lot on your body. It's a lot on your relationship. It's after the baby's born, you've got the recovery. Um, if you've had something, you know, pretty severe and, um, like in a C-section, that's a whole different recovery. Well, I can tell you wholeheartedly that the, the value of the pain that you experienced with childbirth, child carrying, child raising, all of it is the number one reason that I've never had a baby myself. Oh yeah. Yeah. It has nothing that to do with biology. looks really hard and painful. <laughs> And pain does, there is a value to pain. I will never forget, to get kind of serious about this for a second, I will never forget when Jason, who was the original partner on this podcast, Jason and I did the first eight episodes together before um, Jason decided it wasn't a great fit and you basically took his spot. He, but he said something to me that I uh, it will stick with me forever. He talked about the value of pain to force us to make ch- change in our lives. That there are fundamental changes that humans need to make, but that they won't make until they're in enough pain that the change is the preferred alternative to the status quo. Mm-hmm. And wow, that hit me like a ton of bricks. I think he is... Absolutely right. That certainly applied to my alcoholism. I And I think, from the people that we meet, I think that applies in most, maybe every single case. Until you're, the pain of drinking, in one way, shape, or form, becomes so significant that the pain of not drinking is less. Until, you know, it's like a teeter-totter and you, you tip that scale. Um then the drinking is still preferable even even when there's pain involved. And I, I just, I think that's, that that one little kind of lesson from Jason has made me reconsider pain as not just always a bad thing, that pain has a value to it. You know, I think about early on in the podcast, we were talking about, I made a comment about, the fact that we were really committed to our marriage and that that was one of the reasons that our relationship has survived alcoholism and has survived recovery sobriety as well and we got some we got some blowback for that comment and one uh, person in particular who she joined our echoes of recovery group um, she's still in our echoes of recovery group she's um, become a good friend, someone that we really admire and trust and appreciate the decision she's made. But she, her relationship ended in divorce and she was really offended by me saying, you know, gosh, one of the reasons we survived is because we took marriage seriously. It wasn't, you know, like you, I don't know, you see Hollywood stories of marriages and divorces and you're like, oh, they just, whatever, they didn't care or Liz Taylor's been married 15 times or whatever it is, and they obviously don't, or, um... Divorce is an easy out. Divorce is an easy out. They don't... That's, yeah. Know, Johnny that's Carson's what it looks been married like. a bunch of times. Why am I picking people that are so old? I don't know. Maybe because you're This old. is for our younger population. <laughs> if you're in your 20s, we want you to not understand this part. But, anyway, I, I definitely made the... And I believed it at the time. I didn't know any better. I believe that one of the reasons we survived is because we took marriage seriously. And if you got divorced, you probably didn't take marriage as seriously as Matt and Sherry did. Well, and you and always I was had wrong. And you always had a hang up, and there was always that disillusion that my mom and my sister had both been divorced, and you were like, "Oh, it's just you acted like it was an easy out, like it was an easy choice that they didn't work hard enough." But it wasn't that. Yeah. You know, there were a lot of other circumstances. 100%. And I don't think that you fully believed that until you started being in conversation with this person. Well, and one of the things that, you know, that I'm convinced of now is that 
she absolutely, and her husband too, took marriage just as seriously as you and me, maybe even more so, the way I've heard her talk. I mean, mm-hmm. it was such an agonizing dis- decision to end the relationship and to get the divorce, but that she was in enough pain in that status quo, in that relationship, that the divorce was the only option. She had to make a fundamental, serious change or, you know, it was going to kill her to stay in that marriage. And I don't think I'm being... But not physically kill her. Well, I don't know. I mean, not like he was going to beat her. Right. Like it was but health-wise, but yes. Yeah, absolutely. Or a drinking and driving incident. and Absolutely. Yeah. But I think she believed, and I believe it too now, that the, the pain of staying... Um, made the the painful decision to go a necessary one. Well, I think that's just another situation where I look at it like alcohol won. You know, yeah. Alcohol won. Like, no matter how committed they were to each other and the relationship and the family they built together, alcohol won, won him. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think pain gets thought of and talked about in a purely negative context. Well, but, Pretty much all the time. Yeah, but then I think there's a good point of pain. I mean, oh, let's see. If you, you know, touch a hot pan, you're going to try to remember to use a hot pad the next time. Or, you know, you fall off your bike because you're not, you're goofing around and not paying attention. Doesn't mean, like, trying to do a trick and you're just not ready. You didn't start with the easy part of learning how to do bicycle tricks as a, you know... You have a bum knee. Or you could just be like me and be riding and going uphill very slow and still have a wreck. And that was pretty painful. It's hard to even call that a wreck. That's just falling sideways <laughs> off your bike. Falling over while stopped. Yeah. In a scree. But, you know. Yeah. I know that I don't take that route anymore. Yeah, there you go. You learned a lesson. I learned my lesson. The pain served a, a purpose. Mm, yes, pain serves a purpose sometimes. And well, it doesn't have to be life-altering. I'm glad you jumped in with those examples because that's... That's what I want to talk about, and I think, again, often pain just gets looked at as purely a negative, but the the purpose is there, and it relates very directly to this thing that we are doing and that we are working with other people who are doing, and that is trying to survive alcoholism, trying to get better on the backside, both as individuals and eventually as a couple. And so, to a degree... I don't want to go too far with this and offend people, but to a degree, I think pain should be celebrated. And if we think of it that way, if we change the way we view pain, then when we're in pain, I think it helps us to see the purpose and to recognize that it's not just pure agony without, you know, without a value to it. It's a warning system is what yeah. you're saying. It, it, one of the things that pain does is it forces us out of stagnation. And, you know, we see it all the time and we experienced it for a long time when people are just stuck. I, I know that what is going on in my life, I know that what's going on in my relationship is not okay. It doesn't feel good. It's not what I want. This isn't how I planned it, but I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to, I'm going to be stuck for a while. And when we're stuck and then the pain increases and we're still stuck and the pain increases and finally Again, we tip that scale or that teeter-totter. I don't know why I picture those two as the mm-hmm. same thing. Um, for our younger audience that really appreciated the Liz Taylor and Johnny Carson <laughs> reference, you probably wouldn't know that a scale used to tip. Um, so let's go with the teeter-totter. Of course, Balance you might not know scale. what a teeter-totter yeah. is either. Yeah. Uh, good stuff. Um, <coughs> but when, when you're stuck... And that the pain reaches a level where you it finally gets you unstuck. That's a big deal. You know, in, in my specific case, uh, when we talk about my alcoholism and what led to my sobriety, there were really two things. I've talked about this before. But the depression and anxiety that I suffered, I had some OCD, which I, I, lump, I lump all this in together, depression, anxiety, and the, and the OCD that I was dealing with. It just got worse and worse and worse as I drank. And for a long time, I thought of the alcohol as the solution to those three things and didn't realize that the alcohol what was, was what was causing those three things. Or exaggerating. You still, I mean, don't you think you still have a little OCD tendencies, but when you were drinking it was exaggerated yeah. I don't know about intensely? Ex- I don't know if exaggerating is the word I'd use. Maybe enhance. Enhance. Maybe exaggerate. I don't know. 
But it, it was the definitely anxiety, worse. Yeah, the anxiety and the depression, I think. Those are those were almost pretty entirely gone. gone. Yeah, I, I mean, think, I think those I went away with I get sad like a normal person, and I get stressed like a normal but person. But that's human. Right, but not like it was when I was drinking. Right. So I would drink when I ha- had work stress or family stress or money stress or whatever. I would drink, and it would make that go away. If I was anxious, I would drink, and it would make that go away. When I, you know, struggled to lock up the house at night because of my OCD, um, it was not hard to lock up the house when I drank enough because I just would completely blow it off. So the the alcohol in my conscious, you know, warped, miseducated brain was helping the depression anxiety and I mean how many cues from society do I need whether it's media or family or whatever where oh I had a rough day at work so I'm gonna have a drink Mm -hmm. um boy uh stuff's really stressful so I'm gonna have a cocktail um I mean that's what all the messaging is everything taught me that I could use alcohol to help with the anxiety and depression and it wasn't until I really started to research brain chemistry and kind of dive in and understand what addiction's all about, that I realized, oh, not only is it providing this really temporary relief from (coughs) the pain that I'm in, but it's also causing the pain that I'm in. Alcohol uh, definitely takes, you know, little nuggets of things like depression, anxiety, and, um, and OCD and stress and all that and just exacerbates it, makes it so much worse. And then the other piece that was causing me pain that resulted in my sobriety was your detachment. Your your decision to just not engage with me emotionally anymore when I would want to talk to you about what I was learning about alcohol or my new rules that I was going to put around alcohol. You just, you had no time for that. And so, and I want to talk about that in a second, but first, let's keep it focused on me. <laughs> so... The pain of your detachment, the pain of the depression and anxiety just got too much. And as much as I loved alcohol, and I mean, at the time, I can still remember how I felt about, you know, an IPA or a whiskey on the rocks. I mean, I loved alcohol. It wasn't just something that I consumed. It wasn't just a feeling that I got. It was a huge part of my identity. It was how I presented myself to the world. I know all this stuff about IPAs, and I drank IPAs before the hipsters made them cool, Um, so it was the idea of stopping drinking was more than just, you know, getting rid of the feeling. It was just cutting a huge chunk of me out. And so the pain of drinking had to be really, 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 really strong before I was willing to make that change. And that's what happened. I mean, I tried for 10 years, I tried to get sober, tried and failed and would, would have, you know, I, I didn't have quick relapses like, oh, I drank for a day, now I'm going to get sober again. I would relapse for six months, and then I would be sober for three months, and then I would drink again for nine months, and then I'd be sober for six months. And so every time I failed, the pain of sobriety was just more than the pain of drinking. I had to get to the point where the pain of drinking was more than the pain of sobriety. Mm -hmm. It's, It's truly diabolical. Let's talk about the pain that helped you to detach. You, I mean, how did that happen for you? For for you, it wasn't like you read a book about detachment or you went to some Al-Anon meetings and they talked about detachment and you said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. You just did it naturally. Well, I tried to do it, you know, because I got some like advice or read, like don't engage when they're drinking, don't you know, when the arguments start, is it usually around drinking? Um, you know, so I tried to do those, but I just, those sort of things early on. Um, some, like I wouldn't tell you, I'm not going to be around you when you're drinking, but then I wouldn't hang out with you. And that I think was the most successful. But if you were, if you were wanting company to like watch a movie you know, if I did it and the kids were asleep because they were young and I didn't, you would get grouchy and that would start an argument. So then I did go down and watch whatever movie um, with you or some sports or whatever. 
Um, but oftentimes I would find other things to do and you would see that I was doing other things. So you didn't really, I don't think, put two and two together. Um, so that one was a little bit easier, but I just couldn't get myself to like fully not engage and react, I guess is another way. I had a big problem for a long time, like reacting to your behavior because I would get so frustrated and so angry that I just, I had to react. So that was really hard, but then it just came to a point where, um, this was after, this was, you know, after the 10 years of the ups and downs, and this was times where there was nine months of sobriety, and, um, I knew that things weren't necessarily better when you had those, like, six and nine months sobriety, because you were just a lot more melancholy and sad, and woe is me, and life is horrible, why can't I be normal? That I got so disappointed and frustrated with you thinking, well, you know, if sobriety and this is how it is, well, it's better than drinking and arguing and putting our family at risk because you were, I wouldn't say you drank and drove a lot, but there would be times we would be at social gatherings where the plan was that, you know, you were maybe going to just have one or two beers and I was going to drink. Well, that went out the window, but then you would be like, no, we agreed. I was drinking. I was driving. So, um. You know, I thought, gosh, you you just have to pull back and I just have to not care. And it, that's how it was. I didn't care what you were doing anymore. Um, I think that attachment, for me, worked best in your very early sobriety. Kind of almost a little too late in a way, but I think it maybe kept you on path for sobriety. Um, oh, yeah. Recognizing that you... I didn't, didn't come running to me with open arms when I got sober. That was huge. I mean, we had played through that several times sure. where there was the, I got sober for you, what more do you want sort of, you know, sentiment that you had. But I just had to say, I don't care what it is you're doing over there, reading. I don't care what you're reading. I don't care that you have to go take a walk. I mean, you took lots of drives, lots of walks. I was like, I didn't care. I didn't care anymore. Yeah. And I don't. I feel bad that I didn't care. Um, but I just got so tired of hearing what you were doing because you were always this grand plan kind of guy. Anywhere from what you wanted to do with the layout of the yard to, you know, how we wanted to run the bakery. You always had an idea, and I just got sick of listening to your ideas and your schemes. Schemes is what I would call them. Your plans about drinking, that was a scheme. A scheme to keep you drinking. You were going to control it. Yeah. So I just, I didn't want to listen to it because I didn't want to be disappointed. Yeah. I didn't want to be let down again. So if I didn't know what you were doing, then I wouldn't have to be let down. I didn't have to put faith or hope or trust in you. So there's the pain. The pain came from being disappointed when I would get sober and tell you I was sober and you'd believe me. That would cause pain because I'd eventually start drinking again. Yeah. Because then so, you would think you outsmarted it. Yeah. Oh, I've got this plan to control it. No, and it's a scheme. And you would just use a manipulation tactic to get me to believe to hang on longer. So if you had read about detachment in a book, purely, that's where it... You, or you had joined a group and everyone in the group was talking about detachment. And you tried it. The problem would have been that you didn't have any pain points to enforce the detachment for you. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. When you when you detached, when you were done with me, I mean, we didn't call it detachment because we didn't know that term. When you were just done. Yeah. And I remember you were done because you had been hurt so many times. You had been hurt when I would get sober and then I'd start drinking again. I mean, I can remember, and and I I never snuck around and hid the drinking from you not purely because I didn't think I could get away with it not because I'm some saint I mean I would have absolutely done that if I thought I could have gotten away with it I thought about it sometimes I thought about what if I just drink vodka I'll drink it out of a water bottle no one will ever know but I'm like no my behavior changes too much there's no way for Sherry not to know that I've been drinking that yeah. that just didn't compute for me so so I can remember times where I had some period of sobriety some period of months of sobriety and then I would come to you and tell you I'm going to start drinking again and I can remember 
I mean, there were times where you were like, whatever, I knew this was going to happen. Fuck you. I don't care. But there were times when, especially earlier on, where it was devastating to you when I would say that, that I had decided I was going to start drinking. Yeah. I mean, I remember one incident that I was like, I thought it was just going to be a relapse because you felt pressure that we were going to be around people for a weekend. And I thought you were drinking a glass of ice water on the front porch. What a fucking idiot. Because you're like, nope, I'm just going to keep drinking. I so badly. If our kids weren't here, my mom wasn't here. I mean, it ended up being a bad night anyhow. But I was taking that glass and throwing it across the street. I was so fucking pissed. Because I was, I mean, I was pissed at you all weekend. Our friends knew. You were so drunk and oblivious to it because you just didn't want to have to remember it, I think, in some of the circumstances. And these were friends that had a child that struggled with alcoholism. So they knew. And they were very supportive of both you and I, knowing the struggle. But I was like, okay, maybe just after this weekend, he'll come back and realize that's not a good choice and stay in sobriety. And I think that was one of the times, I think that may have been one of the points where I was like, nope. I just, I think after that, I just didn't care if you were drinking on it. I think when you approached me about sobriety again, I thought, oh yeah, here we go again. He said, yep. And I was like, I'm not going to get my hopes up. And you know what? I know how to deal with you when you're drinking. I, when you were drinking, I could be very, at the end, I could be very detached. Like, I don't care as long as the kids and I are safe. I don't care if his feelings are hurt. I don't care if I join, ask him to join us for dinner. He's not going anywhere with us. And I I was just going to say, and then... You know, that was one of those weekends, like, I knew how to handle you when you were drunk and and around friends. I mean, that first night was really hard, but then I was like, okay, I can get through this. I can do these things because, you know, he's not going to turn into a mean, angry person because we have this room, this house with a whole, you know, bunch of people. (coughs) Excuse me, but... It's interesting. I'm just realizing right now as we're talking about this that... Some of the, we've talked a lot about resentment processing and how important it is for both of us that we go back and we talk about the bad, bad experiences and that you be able to express exactly what really happened. And I acknowledge that what you say really happened is what really happened. I have no leg to stand on as it relates to arguing with you because I was either blacked out or browned out or in some way, memory wise, incapacitated. So... It would be silly for me to argue with you, but I'm just realizing now some of the, there are sticking points in resentment processing. There are things that are hard to get past and there are incidents. Your 40th birthday is a good example. We've talked about it multiple times on the podcast. You, you bring it up, not all the time, but it comes up. That must've been a big time pain point for you. Yeah. When we talk about this topic of pain and the kind of pain that moves the needle, the kind of pain that makes somebody make a fundamental change. That that instant, that weekend away when we went away and and I focused on alcohol instead of focusing on you for your 40th birthday, that must have been so devastatingly painful that it's one of the things that caused, for instance, your ability to detach. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important because when we talk with folks about resentment processing, you know, a lot, sometimes the feedback from the alcoholic is, why do we have to keep bringing this back up? I said I was sorry. Why do we have to keep bringing this up? Why do we have to keep bringing this up? Well, I think some instances, and they, they may be the worst of the worst. They may not be the worst of the worst. <coughs> they may not be the most traumatic and, you know, the most kind of rock bottomy for the drinker, but it's the ones that cause the pain that you just can't get over in the loved one that does two things. One of them is a positive purpose, frankly. It causes the loved one to make some kind of fundamental shift internally. And it's also just, it's one that you just can't get over. Yeah. But but again, I think it's important that we we remember that pain serves a purpose and that that's not all bad. And so me as the drinker, if I've got, if you as my wife, if you've got something you keep bringing up, I need to not be offended by that. I need to not be um, angry that you can't seem to get over that. 
That's an that that's it's like you know those that forget history are doomed to repeat it. If you keep bringing that up, something happened. There's a fundamental shift taking place there, and that's something for us to recognize and kind of dive into and not be afraid of. Yeah, well, I think that particular incident kind of makes me feel a little guilty too, because before. Like, we were headed out of town, but we had stopped to get the last of the groceries, and um, we were right by a liquor store. Well, I think it was a Sam's Club that sold liquor at the time. Our... Okay, so we're not on the 40th birthday. You're talking no, about talking the time about the away talk I was the, talking about. in the cabin with yeah. the friends. And, yes. and you were struggling. You were in the car, and you're like, I don't know. I just, I don't know if I can get through this weekend. And this is where I think I had this attachment. Like, yeah, you can. Whatever. Suck it up. You know, in my mind. And then I remember it just started bawling. I was like, oh my God, you can't even try. You can't even try one weekend. You can't even attempt to go. We aren't even there and you're already trying to give in. Because I was just pissed. Mm -hmm. And I think, what if my reaction had been different? Because then we started arguing and we were about halfway there and you pulled over in a small town and went to the liquor store and stuff and I was like oh my gosh but I think what if my reaction had been different like what like you can get through it at least let's go in and try let's do it together let's try to you know and I know you're shaking your head but I mean it doesn't make it any better for me from my standpoint I was like well what if I wasn't like just so emotional about it would it have made any difference? Or at least we would have gone it. Maybe we would have gone into the evening with you not drinking. And then, you know, you could pull your normal thing that I was used to. I just look over and you have a beer and you're standing around people like, ah, ha, 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 ha. look, you can't cause a scene now. No, I, I can tell you with no reservations that by the time I brought it up to you, I was drinking that weekend. There was nothing that was going to stop me. I was just trying to navigate the shark-infested waters and try to, I don't know, break it to you the best possible way. Or, you know, maybe I stopped at the liquor store in the smaller town instead of when we were at the grocery store because I thought giving you more time to let it sink in was a better option. I I, I can't remember the deep, but I can tell you for sure. By the time I brought it up to you, it was done. It was mm-hmm. done. There was nothing you could have done. Yeah. Well, then that's good to know. So then that's something that maybe somebody might take away from this. Like, if they're already talking about it, they've already made up their mind in their head. Whereas I thought, you know, I've carried this guilt thinking, oh, I could have been more supportive no. and stopped you. There's no way you could have stopped me at that point. So. No way. And I, I don't know that I can describe the feeling. It would be kind of like you trying to describe childbirth to me. When... So, I didn't have enough self-esteem to get through that weekend with friends where everyone else was going to be drinking and I wouldn't be. Not everyone. Or they wouldn't have been drinking the way you They wouldn't would have been have drinking been. the way I was. But I think everyone else there would have been drinking. But, it, so the self-esteem is a factor. There was still a great deal of pleasure involved in drinking, to an extent, until I overdrank and then it was pain, right? But... So the self-esteem was a factor. The fact that I was going to miss out on this thing that was one of my favorite things to do. Be in a cabin in the woods with really good friends and unlimited alcohol and no parental responsibility and no work responsibility. (coughs) That was at the top of the list of favorite things. So it would be like going to Disneyland and not riding any rides or seeing, you know, any of the characters or whatever your thing is at Disneyland. Be like going to the ocean and, and... you know, standing on the road that leads to the ocean and looking at it, but not going and feeling the sand or getting in the ocean. I can't, I can't think of a way to describe it that does it any justice. But the idea of sitting that out was too much for me at that point. That's all I can tell you. And by the time I started talking about it with you, it was over. It was happening. So, so I hope that alleviates maybe some of the guilt that you felt. But the the pain that you were in that caused that response to be one of detachment, one of just anger as soon as I brought it up. Um, that that makes perfect sense. There was, you know, if you had had a different reaction, no, nothing would have happened. You know, when we first started talking on this podcast and when we first started the Echoes of Recovery group, our kind of stated goal 
was to help people recover their marriages from alcoholism. We thought, you know, gosh, if our experience it could provide a roadmap for people so that they could do what we did and maybe do it a little faster, maybe do it a little more efficiently, maybe not have as many bumps in the road and save their marriage, that would be great. That is no longer our goal at all. This is not about helping people fix their marriages. This is about helping people be strong and independent and proceed in their individual recovery and move through that process with the support of other people and hopefully, possibly move through that a little bit faster. But that faster part is what's really troubling me. And that's why I wanted to talk about this topic of pain on the podcast and why the pain serves a purpose and why the pain is so important. If we say, okay, you know, we are now almost six years sober and our relationship's in a really good spot and we are individually in a really good spot, that's all awesome. I mean, we recorded, we, we used the date as the episode title, 7-14-21, July 14th of 2021. So that was a year and three months ago. We recorded a podcast episode that was about a complete emotional relapse, a complete breakdown in our relationship. I mean, we were in the pit of despair. It was as desperate and bad as it had ever been when I was drinking. And that was just a year and three months ago. So we were four and a half years sober at that point, right? If I'm doing the math right. So the this idea that hopefully people can learn from our mistakes and move through it a little faster has been high on the list of goals for me. You know, for, but again, not not to fix the relationship, to fix themselves individually. We had shifted by that point that that was what the goal was. But yeah, faster and not making all the same mistakes, yeah, that's good stuff. But if you don't have the pain factor as a motivator, you can't necessarily move through this any faster than we did. Does that make sense? Yes. I think I think that maybe there can be some things like like I said, just knowing that when you were talking about it, talking about alcohol and and brought that up to me in the car as we're heading out of town for this weekend away with friends in the cabin. Um, Maybe that can be something that, you know, the loved one can say, oh, well, now I know anytime they bring it up, they've already been thinking about it for a lot. So I don't have to get my hopes up, you know, and I can I can kind of tell myself, well, the alcohol's already won there. And I don't have to carry this guilt like I have carried. Like, what if my reaction had been different? So maybe maybe learning from others' mistakes and giving little tools or little tidbits of knowledge, that might help ease the emotional, independent and individual emotional pain that someone might be going through. Um, and it can maybe be something that has detachment to kind of speed them up a little bit. Because they understand and have insight to what, you know, you were going through and what I was going through. But I think time is still a factor and pain, emotional pain, is still a factor. Yeah, I think learning from each other is still completely valid and and hugely valuable. I think that story that we've just discussed and and you've come to a realization about, that's going to probably help some people, for sure. But what I want... What I want to help folks get away from is the use the word guilt a minute ago. I want to help people get away from the guilt of indecision, of the guilt of our relationship is stuck. I as an individual am stuck and I don't know what to do. But sometimes people stay stuck for a long time. Mm-hmm. And and for a long time, I've thought of that as a negative thing. Oh, that person is still stuck. That That's that stinks. How can we help that person? Sometimes you're stuck because you're not in enough pain yet. Yeah. And I don't want to add to the negativity that that person experiences a feeling of guilt because they can't move as fast as Matt and Sherry are saying they should, or they can't move as fast as these other examples that they're seeing out there are moving. 
because that's not helpful. If if you're not in enough pain to make a fundamental change in your life, then you're just not in that much pain yet. And so feeling like the the indecision, you know, you, should I stay or should I go, for instance? Well, I can't make that decision yet. Woe is me. I must suck as a human. I must be a weak human because I can't make that decision. No. Can't make that decision because you're not there yet. How many times have we heard people say, you know when you know? Mm-hmm. And it's hard to define that in a tangible way so that you explain you know what you know to people and they go, oh, I understand what you're saying. I mean, it sounds like voodoo, right? <laughs> but you know when you know because you know when the pain tips the scale. And what you thought was the plan hurts more than the, the fear and unknown of what the new plan is going to be. You know, most people don't take marriage lightly. I don't think most people are like Johnny Carson and Liz Taylor. What's a modern example of that? I don't know. I'm sure there's tons, but I don't keep up on celebrity news. Okay. Well, if you're in your 20s, then just do some Googling and you'll learn about all the divorces there. But most people... Sorry. I was going to say, I don't think that necessarily they take marriage lightly. It's just more financially easier for them to separate and to move on with their independent lives. You're right. It is... It is irresponsible of me to put myself into their <laughs> minds. I don't know. Um, but, so, okay, most people don't take marriage lightly. When, when we talk about detachment or divorce, that is serious, serious business. So, you know, you can't detach. You can't get a divorce because you read in a book that it was helpful. You can't detach you can't get a divorce because your friends are telling you oh you should just leave him you know he's he's a terrible person and he's never going to get fixed that's not enough in fact you know we just published a a piece on the sober and unashamed blog last week that was written by one of the people in our echoes of recovery group and deb talks about in the piece how unhelpful that advice from her friends was, you know, the the kind of unsolicited advice that often is, oh, just leave them. That's offered in, out of love, you know, people who love you don't want to see you in pain. So they think just leave them is the way for you to get out of pain. They don't consider the fact that the leaving itself is going to cause tremendous pain. And you can't do that until the pain of staying becomes more significant than the pain of going. So, you know, people people don't take marriage, don't take relationship, committed relationships lightly. So they ha- they have to get there before they're willing to do it. And you know that's that's why I think the title of this episode will in- include the word the va- you know the phrase the value of pain, the value of pain for forced progress, um, for forcing progress is is so so important. And so it's it's equally important that we let that play out and take its course and that we don't feel shame for the pace of play. If it takes time, it takes time. There are lots of people that we interact with that I, I think they are overwhelmed by the pain they're in from their current situation, but they're also overwhelmed from the shame of indecision. And I hope people can move past the shame of indecision. Because this stuff is hard. It's probably, for most people, it's going to be the hardest decision you'll ever make in your life. If you're talking about divorce. So, I mean, I just hope people cut themselves some slack. Does that make sense to you? I mean, you mm-hmm. you went through it, like we said, for 10 years with me. But then on the on coming out the other side, it looks like we're going to make it. We're still together. So, I think it's easier for us. Right? Because... You held on, you suffered, you endured the pain, I did too. I'm not trying to get any sympathy here, but we both endured a lot of pain and now all signs point toward it's going to work out for us. So if you were to look as an outsider at this story, you'd say, oh, okay, that makes sense. I see why they stayed together. But if the ending result is divorce and the end result is divorce because that's the right decision and you and I firmly believe that in many cases that's the right decision... 
because for a variety of reasons, but most often because the drinker either can't find sobriety or they can find sobriety, but they can't find recovery and they're not willing to grow and change and move forward. And that leaves the loved one still in a ton of pain. So if the end result is divorce and that's the right decision, but they've still endured 10 years of struggle getting to the divorce, the outside world's going to look at that and be like, why didn't you do that sooner? What's wrong with you? Why are you so weak? Well, because you have to give the opportunity, I think, to see how far the and how progressive each of you will be. You're right. Like, if you had just quit drinking and um, continued to do bibliotherapy but not let it really become more enhanced, you didn't say you didn't start Shout Sobriety. You were never a part of Echoes because it never launched. Um, and you were still that, woe is me, I'm, I must be a failure because I can't drink like normal people. And you kept that attitude and that mentality. That wouldn't have been any, you know, that wouldn't have really been much better in a lot of ways because you wouldn't be drinking and we wouldn't be spending money and we wouldn't be arguing that way. But there would be that sad, not committed, not, you know, um, communicative, communicative relationship that we have now because I wouldn't want to hear your your problems because I'd be like well you know at least he's sober and I wouldn't understand that there would be a difference and I would just be unhappy in a marriage yeah and then people I think live with that and then you get divorced and then they're like well he's sober he's not drinking anymore why why are you guys divorced well because there's a lot of shit that goes on even when alcohol is removed that's where I think some people probably feel like they can't make those decisions because they're like, well, they're quitting drinking and they, but they haven't really recovered or haven't moved the needle. Like you said earlier, hasn't moved in a positive way for a thriving relationship. Cutting out the opinions of the outside world, especially people who haven't gone through this is probably really a good idea in all cases, whether the relationship survives or not. Our high-quality sound studio probably is not blocking the sound of the dog that sounds like he's attacking us from across the fence. Yeah. we got a new neighbor, new dog. He's mostly quiet, but when he's like a hound dog, so he must smell something, because when he goes off, <laughs> he is just off. You know, I, I think support, like the support that we offer in Echoes of Recovery and Shout Sobriety and Marriage Evolution and through the podcast, support can sometimes make people feel guilty and and make them maybe feel shame. And I, I think that's an important thing to recognize and hopefully help people to dismiss. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you reach out for support and the pain hasn't gotten you to the point where you're ready to make a move yet in either direction, that, and you see other people who are, you, and you get to know people who have success stories, either success because their marriage is getting better or success because they've moved away from their marriage because it's not going to get better. And you see that. And then you just sit there and you feel bad about yourself. Mm-hmm. Why can't I be as strong as that person who made a decision? Why can't I be as strong as that person? So here we call it support. And I think in most ways it is supportive. But at the same time, I think it, it can be shrouded in guilt because... You're now you used to be alone and that sucked. Now you're surrounded by loving, empathetic people who've been, had the same experience. Okay, that's good. But hey, they're all making progress and I'm not. Now it sucks again. Well, and I think it also goes back to your personal pain threshold. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, how much are you willing to endure? Because I think for me, it wasn't stubbornness. I think I just put up with a lot more because. Than other people would because I had baggage and history going in. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't as bad as this. You know, it wasn't as bad as that. Like comparing it to my mom and my sister's relationships and uh, marriages that ended because of, um, you know, alcohol and stuff. And I, you know, and I had a pretty terrible example with my sister's second marriage. Seeing how my brother-in-law was pretty much housebound all the time because of his depression and alcoholism. So, well, there's a lot of factors in our personal situation. Our financial situation was slightly more intertwined than is normal in a marriage because we owned a business and you were a 51% owner 
legally of the business and you had no interest in running it by yourself. We had four kids, which is a lot. We lived a thousand miles away from family. So there are a lot of contributing factors factors to why staying for longer and enduring more pain made sense for you, whereas it might not make sense for someone who's in a different situation. And that's exactly the point. You can't just compare yourself to other people who are moving successfully through their recovery and say, why can't I be like that person? Yeah, they're enduring alcoholism too. But beyond that, there's so many factors that are different. Different circumstances. pain threshold is a a really important point. The point is, pain controls the pace. It's not until you're in enough pain to make the change that you're going to make the change. I want to go back to what the, the piece that we published from Deb last week. It's titled... Owning my it's well the full title is the evolution series owning my story if you if you want to search for it on our sober and unashamed website the point of it was that her story is her story even though to tell her story she has to kind of out her alcoholic partner but she she no longer is willing to hide behind the fact that she might hurt him to tell her story she's owning her own story it's a very empowering piece I encourage people to read it. But toward the end, she makes a point that is not, for me, directly related to the main point of the story. She says um, that she reached a point where her partner was no longer a given. He was a variable in her story. That kind of blew me away. She reached the point where she wasn't trying to fix this situation knowing that they were in this relationship and the relationship was never going to end. She moved him from a, a fixed constant to a variable and said, we may or may not survive. You may or may not be part of my life anymore. And it was very empowering for her. It actually made her tolerate more pain and stay longer because she realized the decision was now hers. Mm-hmm. It was no longer, there's no decision to be made and this pain is just overwhelming and what the fuck am I going to do? It was, there is a decision to be made. Maybe we don't make it. And that gave her the strength to endure more pain. I think that's fascinating and really true. I know when I was in early sobriety and I really woke up to how detached you were emotionally from me, that was the first time I realized, oh, she might leave. She might actually break all these financial ties that are intertwined. And she might actually, you know, go the thousand miles back home for the support that she can receive there. That might actually happen. I didn't, for so long, I didn't realize it. So I feel like at some point, and I don't know when that was, you moved me from being a fixed, defined, we are a partnership, we are together, nothing can break us apart, to this guy's just a variable in my story. We may or may not make it. Do you remember when you did that? I don't have a concrete moment when that happened. I think for me, it just grew. Like, what? what is the purpose of this relationship? We're hurting each other. We're hurting the kids. And as much as I didn't want to be divorced, I didn't want to see and feel any more pain. And I didn't want the kids to only have that tension in the house. So, it was just something that grew, I think. Well, I think it was important. It was important to my sobriety to recognize that I was a variable and not a constant. And although it's not the main point of Deb's piece, it's a really important sub-piece. Because it's something that you and I experienced. And I think for years you were a variable in my... But it was, even though we were in the same house, you weren't my go-to. You weren't my person. You were not my rock. You were none of those things. Well, it it goes back to this topic of safety that we talked about on the podcast last week. I go from being your, you know, I don't mean for this to sound, you know, patriarchal and sexist, but we took vows to protect each other. So I go from being your protector to being the most dangerous part of your life, most unsafe part of your life. Yeah, the most unhealthy part of my life. That's hard. That's hard. So, you know, I think the message here is as much to the alcoholics that are listening, whether you're still 
drinking and trying to figure it out or you're in sobriety, my guess is, and it's only a guess, but you're probably a lot more committed to your relationship than your spouse is or your partner is. You are probably a variable for them, whereas they are a constant for you. And Like we talked about in the podcast last week, the safety one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because You're in two different you, relationships. You have two different relationships. You have no idea where you stand with yeah. your sober partner. So when I woke up and realized how close you were to leaving, holy shit, was that an awakening for me? And an important one, because it, it made me double down on sobriety and say, you know, I can't... I can't pull into the grocery store to get the last groceries before the weekend away and and drop this decision on her that I've decided to drink again. Like, those days are gone. I can't do that again. So it's a big deal. I want to make sure that we're not making light of calling pain a positive thing and a motivating factor and something that we need to not view as totally negative. I am very well aware that we have listeners and people in our groups whose spouse has died from alcoholism. Yeah. And so the amount of pain that those people are in is not something I'm familiar with and certainly not something that I have any expertise on talking about. So I recognize that sometimes pain um, goes to a place where it's got to be really, really hard to see any positive in it at all. Now that said, I wonder, and again, I'm not... I'm not telling you what I know. I'm telling you what I wonder. I wonder if the pain of losing someone that's that close to you, a spouse, for instance, is not also serving a purpose because you have to make some significant changes to survive that. You have to go from, you know, being this family unit, probably, you know, some income is lost, certainly emotional support, all of that, to all of a sudden, it's all on you. And... That's such significant change that I just wonder if that pain of that loss isn't also, I'm not going to use the word positive, but isn't also a motivating factor to, to once you get through that initial grieving period to make you capable of making the changes that you have to make. I wonder. But last thing I want to do is have anyone listen to this and think that we're making light of pain and not recognizing that it's mostly bad. It is. Yeah. But well, there, and we know from the, some of the people in our group that have lost the, the the work that they have done to get through that and to really make changes in a healthy mental health state is remarkable. Yeah. They have we have seen positive results in their own personal growth and what they have learned about themselves with therapy. Yeah. Um and they keep digging and, and trying to work to make their lives more whole and better with that. Sadly, without their partner. Yeah. The other last point I want to make is that pain is a constant. You know, our relationship is in a really good place right now, Sherry. I feel better about us than I ever have. And I feel pretty good about myself as an individual as well. And I think you do you do too. But even when there's peace in the relationship, pain is still there and it's still a motivator. It's not like, you know... It's all rainbows and unicorns at some point. The pain just comes from a different place. The intensity is certainly different. I'll acknowledge that for sure. But I go back to what Jason said. It still takes pain to make us make fundamental changes. And whether it's, you know, a couple of things that come to mind for me right now is work stress. I don't think you ever get out of work stress, right? Um, Unless you get to be Mr. Rogers. I mean, he looked pretty relaxed. So if that gets to be your job, good for you. But otherwise, um, we've all got work stress. And we've, you know, another pain point for me is repairing relationships with my kids. Um, In sobriety and in this recovery growth, I can see things I want to do different and do better. And when the pain is sufficient enough to make me make those changes and and focus and, and put the, log the miles to make the change then that's a good thing. But it it remains pain as a motivator. So I just don't want to be Pollyanna and tell people, oh, if you make it to six years of sobriety, everything's great and there's no pain. Pain's a constant. You're going to continue to chop the tip of your fingers off when you're cooking. Only, that is not... You probably will like have every three years. pain again. Only every three years. Only every three years. 
but it just shifts the direction. And so I think that's, so, so this idea that pain is of value, I think is helpful moving forward, whether you're in the depths of it, the deepest despair, or you've moved on, things have gotten better, but you still have pain motivating you um, in kind of smaller ways. It's, it's still a value, even when in the moment, it only feels awful. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.